Thank you all very much for coming. Let me welcome you here to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at Cato. And uh, again, let me welcome you here to our discussion of John Mueller's book, The Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. As if on cue, we had, I think, the other day what was a very useful setup for John Mueller's book and the discussion of it. Uh, a very prominent member of the Washington foreign policy community was remarking on the implications of a potential nuclear Iran. He said, once Iran gets nuclear weapons, we are in danger on a worldwide basis. Iran isn't the end of the problem. The real difficulty with that analysis is that Saudi Arabia will get nuclear weapons, probably Egypt, probably Turkey, possibly others. So within a five- to ten-year period, you'll have half a dozen nuclear countries in the Middle East almost guaranteeing a nuclear exchange at some point or another. And I think that serves in some sense as a useful foil uh, for much of what John Mueller thinks is wrong with the debate about nuclear weapons and their implications for national security. So let me go ahead and introduce Dr. Mueller, and then I'll introduce our two commentators subsequent to that. Uh, John Mueller is the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies and Professor of Political Science at Ohio State University. And his research interests include international politics, foreign policy, defense policy, public opinion, democratization, economic history, post-communism, terrorism, musical theater, and dance history. His previous books include Overblown, How Politicians and the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them, and the remnants of war. So after warning us that our fears of war are overblown and our fears of terrorism are overblown, we learn that our fears of nuclear weapons uh, are overblown. Professor Mueller has a bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago and master's and uh, doctorate from the University of California at Los Angeles. So without further ado, I'll present John Mueller. Okay, thank you, Justin, and thanks for the invitations. Uh, really nice to be here. I should probably start out with my usual uh, disclaimer for Washington audiences. Uh, nothing I say should be taken to necessarily reflect the views of Woody Hayes um, or, or of any of his football players, particularly the bigger ones. Um, what I'd like to do uh, today uh, is deliver a uh, sort of cheerful talk about nuclear weapons, um, which is not the usual pattern. Um, and this is not necessarily a bit, uh, well received. For example, when I try to peddle my book, um, the, uh, uh, the slide is not moving. Let's see. Yeah, right. <laughs> a, Woody is out there. Anyway, a couple of publishers turned it down on the grounds that it's hard to sell a book about what you, you know, what you shouldn't be, what you should be scared. Of. It's, it's much easier to sell a book of what you should be scared of than what you shouldn't be scared of. Um, but uh, fortunately, Oxford University Press was not uh, impressed by that argument, so the book is actually here. Uh, the book is designed basically to be a, um, a, a cure, I hope, for insomnia. Uh, a very large number of books, of course, over the centuries have been very good cures for insomnia, but this may be the first book that's ever been written in, in which the author is intending uh, to uh, uh, try to cure insomnia. 
Uh, the insomnia I'm worried about basically is the things like this from Robert Gates. Every senior leader, when you're asked what keeps you awake at night, is the thought of a terrorist ending with a weapon of mass destruction, especially nuclear. Um, and uh, some of the anxiety uh, in this town can be pretty extensive. Uh, this is Robert Mueller uh, being described. There are dark circles under his heavy-lidded brown eyes. When he utters the word nuclear device, he knits his brow and clenches his teeth. At one point, he is discussing the possibility of nuclear theft from terrorists, and anxious thought lifts his left eyebrow like an arrow poised in mid-flight. Um, or there's a guy named Rolf uh, Moat Larsen, um, who used to be at the CIA, is now at Harvard. Um, and the description of his problems are, he knows more surely with each passing minute that we are blind without moles, that al-Qaeda is looking for uranium, and there's plenty of it out there. With as little as 35 pounds, a sophisticated group could build a Hiroshima-sized bomb. We'd never see it coming. That's why he can't sleep. He's growing grim, sepulchral, and um, he hasn't touched his corn muffin. Um, <laughs> so, what, um, so anyway, my, if, if my book is successful and I'm able to reduce the amount of anxiety in this town, presumably people will sleep better and will have better decisions being made. So um, if, if that does happen, I'm sure, I can assure you I'm going to take full credit. Um, what I'd like to do is talk about several uh, issues. Uh, one of these is the, um, uh, the issue of nuclear weapons themselves. Uh, the book starts out mostly dealing with the problem of, uh, of what nuclear weapons can do. And while I think it's, I certainly agree that nuclear weapons are by far the most terrible weapon ever uh, 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 put into, into uh, uh, ever invented, uh, their destructive ca capacity is very commonly exaggerated. This is a fairly tricky thing to write uh, because it sounds like, to a degree, I'm trivial, trying to trivialize nuclear weapons, and I'm not. I'm simply obviously trying to get them in, in reasonable context and to deal with some of the exaggerations. And as far as I can see, even the first person um, I, uh, uh, who's, who's actually tried to do that, to try to sort of uh, explicitly point out that they are not necessarily the end of the world. Uh, it's implied in a lot of discussion, uh, but not uh, most people, I think, are afraid of, of, uh, of seeming to trivialize nuclear weapons. Uh, this is Hiroshima. Um, and this is the another picture. There's a, uh, n the damage to Hiroshima, of course, was was uh, massive. Uh, and between that and Nagasaki, over 100,000 people died, either immediately in short term. Uh, there was a huge amount of devastation, though, as you can see, a building there, which is actually quite close to ground zero, uh, remained standing. In fact, no non-wooden bridges were destroyed. Uh, and much of the damage was because of fires, you know, it's sort of a tinderbox types um, uh, a city, but the damage obviously was horrific. Um, however, what I'm concerned about a little bit is what Spencer Royert, a sort of nuclear historian, has said, that you say nuclear bomb and everybody immediately thinks of the end of the world. It obviously hasn't been the case for Hiroshima. That's what it looks like today. Um, and so what I'd like to do is at least sort of keep the nuclear bomb in context. Uh, and, we've, we've, uh, and the thing I'm concerned about is these massive exaggerations, because I think they lead frequently to uh, sometimes hysterical or wrong-headed policy. Uh, for example, J, J, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer in 1946 said that three or four men with smuggled atomic bomb units could blow up New York. Um, when he was asked in, in testimony. Well, um, the amount of uh, New York you could blow up with a ground-released uh, uh, um, uh, Hiroshima-sized bomb, which is what existed, of course, at that time, uh, uh, would destroy 1% of New York. Now, that could be horrible, and obviously you could have a fantastic number of people killed, uh, but the idea that it could blow up the whole city of New York is simply nonsense. In other words, Oppenheimer uh, is intentionally, I think, probably exaggerating by a factor of 100. 
Um, and uh, that should be, I think, kept in mind. The, uh, if you're talking about bombing New York, uh, the recent bombs that have been tested by North Korea would, if left, would, if exploded instead in, in, on the ground in Central Park, uh, would not destroy any buildings at all. So the point is that obviously they're destructive and horrible in the right place, can kill lots of people, but they're not the end of the world. Um, George Tenet, a former head of the CIA, uh, talks about if terrorists managed to set off a mushroom cloud, that would destroy our economy. That's not simply a destructive thing, but arguing that the society would basically fall apart if that happens. Um, and that kind of stuff is very common, and it's never refuted or actually asked about. Uh, no one says to Tenet, how would, that de how would one bomb going off in Peoria or New York or Washington or Minneapolis um, uh, destroy the economy of the country? Everybody goes home and just starves to death? I mean, 9-11 would suggest, obviously, it would bring, bring people together even more so. Professional football uh, players now have two uh, uh, um, flags, uh, decals on their helmets rather than one. Um, and so uh, it's this extravagant kind of exaggeration, which I'm opposed to uh, and want to, uh, uh, want to deal with. Okay, a few other issues. There's also been a tendency to massively uh, ex ex exaggerate by uh, adding things to the uh, – inventing a new category, which is called weapons of mass destruction, which existed for a long time but really got promulgated and uh, elaborated uh, during the course of the 1990s. Um, and so weapons that are not weapons of mass destruction got put inside. Uh, chemical weapons are simply not – cannot kill massively. Uh, uh, in World War I, they accounted for seven-tenths of one percent of the fatalities. They're very difficult to deal with, et cetera. Uh, biological weapons in some cases can possibly uh, do some uh, 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 substantial damage, mass damage, but most of them are unlikely to do uh, very much at all. Uh, they mostly are likely to fizzle. Am Shinriko tried several times with biological weapons. Not only didn't they kill anybody, but no one even noticed. Um, and uh, controlling them and keeping them uh, viable and so forth is a, is a difficult feat. If, you, if you're talking about mass casualties, killing one person is a different issue or five people. Uh, radiological weapons basically are unlike that a terrorist would have are unlikely to kill very many people at all. In fact, probably none. Uh, they might irradiate an area uh, such that you'd have to leave. Otherwise, if you stayed there for 40 years, your chance of getting cancer would increase by one-tenth of one percent or something like that. But it's not a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, and the definitions we have go beyond that. Uh, according to the current definitions, hand grenades are weapons – legal definitions in the United States, hand grenades are weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Revolutionary War muskets would be weapons of mass destruction uh, and bombs bursting in air of the kind that Francis Scott Key wrote about uh, would also be weapons of mass destruction, uh, though the main one are the ones at the top. Uh, I think there is a similarity, however, which is relevant to my argument between nuclear, chemical, and biological. In, in the case of all three of those, from a battlefield standpoint, are extremely messy. In the case of nuclear weapons, there's a problem of leftover radiation. So if you go into the battlefield, you have to deal with that. In the case of chemical weapons, you have to wear these ghastly ga gas masks that restrict, you know, very uncomfortable and restrict vision, et cetera. In the case of biological things, there's also the problem of, of contaminating a battlefield. So I think there is a kind of a similarity in that case. Okay, um, let me turn now to uh, a, a couple of other points. One is the issue about uh, the historical consequence of nu nuclear weapons. And it seems to me they've had very little uh, consequence since World War II. And there's a debate about how important they were with Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Japanese surrender, but let me leave that aside for the time being at least. Uh, it seems to me that basically they have not been uh, – their biggest impact supposedly is in preventing World War III or a major conflict. And that's basically what I call the Churchill counterfactual. 
there emerged after World War II a curious paradox and a sublime irony, <clears throat> whereby nuclear weapons vastly spread the area of mortal danger with the potential result that safety will become a sturdy child of terror and survival the twin brother of annihilation. Or put in a different way, um, what he's saying is that uh, uh, if nuclear weapons had not been invented, the people running the world were so incautious, so casual about the loss of human life, so conflagration-prone, so masochistic, so incompetent, or simply so stupid, that they would not have helped, could not have helped plunging into a major war if the worst they could have experienced was the kind of catastrophe they had just experienced uh, in World War II. Um, and I think that puts it in, in real context. That basically, the people who have been running world affairs since 1945 were either the same people or the intellectual heirs of the people um, who tried to prevent World War II. Uh, and when World War, and they thought World War II would be even worse than World War I, and it gave them no comfort to find out by 1945 that they were right about that. So the idea that these people would stumble into a war um, uh, that would look as bad as World War II, much less obviously one with nuclear weapons, uh, strikes me as being extremely unlikely. They've been very risk-averse and very, uh, uh, very uninterested in getting anything that could look like World War II. Uh, so consequently, if nuclear weapons hadn't been invented, there already would be a strong deterrent. The other aspect of this uh, has to do with the Soviet Union, which I think during the Cold War was the main motor of, of uh, instability, you might call it. Uh, but, and, they, and you can see them as being as, as aggressive and expansionary, but the aggression and expansion had nothing to do with Hitlerian invasion. What they had to do with revolution, revolutionary warfare, class warfare, supporting support, the right, right thinkers in other countries and so forth, areas in which nuclear weapons uh, basically have no role. So that during the Cold War, it seems to me, they never had the slightest interest of coming through the fold of gap or anything else, of getting into a major war in Western Europe with or without nuclear weapons, much less getting into a major war with the United States with or without nuclear weapons. Uh, but they, that, mean, that doesn't mean that they were pro-status quo. They did want to change it, but, but, uh, but not in, in a direct Hitlerian manner. Um, so nuclear weapons, I think, was largely irrelevant to that. Uh, there's also been a number of crises in which nuclear weapons seem to have played a role I won't have time to go into that now, but um, in each of these, it's not at all clear that they made any difference. For example, Eisenhower thought the nuclear threat is what caused the final negotiations to end the Korean War. I think most historians think, no, it's the death of Stalin. His threat wasn't well communicated, and it wasn't necessary. And I think most cases you'll find that. It's hard to find a place where you can really say that nuclear weapons really made a difference, though there may be some cases where you could make a, a reasonable argument. Um, but anyway, their impact seems to have been quite minor in that respect, and I think non-necessary in terms of deterring World War III. Um, <clears throat> also, what has happened with nuclear weapons is that they proved to be basically militarily useless. Uh, quite apart from any moral or other problems, um, it's, uh, they basically do not seem to have much of a role to play. Uh, they've been a waste of money and scientific talent, uh, and there never seem to have been really sensible reasons to use them. Uh, they've been considered for use in Korea and Vietnam and a few other places, uh, but they mostly have been discarded. One place they were considered was in the Gulf War in 1991 as more of an exercise, and Colin Powell, I think, basically puts it together pretty well. He was then, of course, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. To do serious damage, just one armored division dispersed in the desert would require a considerable number of tactical nuclear weapons. If I had any doubts before about the practicality of nukes on the, on the field of battle, this report clinched them. They may have some 
you can see a role possibly of, uh, of using them against Moscow in a, in a uh, deterrent situation. But battlefield uses, uh, they just basically aren't seen to be useless. Uh, or, uh, 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 and, and usually almost all studies that have looked at it basically said, you know, we could do it either better with conventional weapons or almost as well with conventional weapons. Why use nuclear weapons? Um, and so even from a, apart from a moral consideration, they don't seem to have been very useful. Didn't help the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Didn't help France in Algeria. Didn't help the British in the Falklands. Didn't help the United States in Korea or Vietnam or any of the other uh, enterprises they've been de dealing with. Um, okay. Uh, and, but there does seem to be a really important issue um, in terms of effect. Um, and I think Albert Einstein... Um, who was often very certain about an awful lot of things, much more than he would uh, with in ordinary physics, uh, uh, argued that the atom has changed everything except our way of thinking. I think basically it's, it's the reverse is probably true, that what it has done is changed nothing except our way of thinking. So I think it has had a big impact, um, in, uh, it, it had a very limited impact sub -sub substantively, but a very big influence on agonies and obsessions. Desperate rhetoric, sometimes referred to as nuclear metaphysics, uh, in, in, in extravagant theorizing, wasteful expenditures, and frenetic diplomatic posturing. Um, it seems to me that they have not really had, uh, they've had, so in movies and so forth, uh, in 1959, the world was depopulated by nuclear weapons twice on celluloid. Um, but, uh, but, it all, but, but it also suggests from the extravagant theorizing standpoint is that an awful lot of the stuff that went on during the Cold War uh, was basically um, irrelevant. There was no deterrent. There's no big war to deter because the Soviets were not interested in getting into one um, any more than it was necessary to deter the Canadians from, you know, going across the Niagara River and taking over Buffalo. Uh, there was really basically not, nothing to deter, no, no real enemy. Nonetheless, there was a huge, in that sense, military direct, military sense, uh, but nonetheless, there was a huge amount of, of endless theorizing about delicate balances of power, how many, how many MIRVs could balance on the head of an ICBM, uh, uh, on and on and on, limited war, limited strategic war, and so forth. And I think basically it was uh, 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 irrelevant, uh, though interestingly interesting intellectually. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower... Um, uh, one said this, this sort of pathetic statement uh, when, he, when he said when he was president. He's one of the guys who, I, one of the few people I think who sort of understood that there wasn't really anything to deter. He'd met with the Soviets, he met with Khrushchev, and he said these guys aren't going to attack. I mean, that's what he seems to have felt. Chris Preble of Cato has written a book on this, uh, strongly recommended. And he said, but we are piling up armaments because we do not know what else to do to provide for our security. Um, and uh, the frustration of that is really quite strongly there. I, I sometimes think, um, and I'm not sure if this is right, but i put it out as a hypothesis, uh, that he was trying to get at that with his famous military-industrial complex speech. Uh, and he, but, but that was basically the wrong argument, it seems to me. It was not that the military-industrial complex is all, this all-powerful, but they were all-powerful because they had this argument that the Ruskies were going to come across the full of the gap or were going to nuke St. Louis. Uh, and he wasn't willing to say publicly, uh, no, that's not true. They're not going to do it. That, that would undercut the military-industrial complex, not simply saying that they manipulate things and so forth uh, 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 overall. Uh, but he never said it, maybe never really quite believed it. Uh, and, of course, politically, it might have been a disaster for him. Uh, so there may have been very good reason why he didn't do it, why he didn't have the political courage to do it. But at any rate, I think that uh, fits into the sort of mindset. Um, okay, let me skip this because I'm a little bit on, out of time. Um, the, um, um, another point has to do with arms reduction. Uh, 
We may have more discussion about this later. But during the Cold War, arms reduction didn't work very well in terms of nuclear weapons. Um, and it seems to me that a good way of looking at arms reduction is basically as a kind of a market situation in which countries perceive threat and they increase weapons or they lower threat uh, weapons. And generally speaking, it may be that arms control agreements are not a very good idea. Um, uh, we can certainly discuss that further, formal agreements. Uh, the point is that you will only lower your uh, number of weapons to a certain level formally uh, if you're really, really sure about it. Because uh, if you've done it formally, you can't uh, if ch things change, you can't suddenly reverse course. I mean, you can withdraw from the treaty and so forth, but that's a, that's a substantial cost. Whereas if you just simply let the bomb, let, uh, let, uh, if you simply disarm, because the, the threat doesn't seem to be so extensive anymore, um, you could always do that confidently because you say, well, I overestimated, so I have to rebuild. You, if, if, you, if you feel you still have the ability to do so, you're more likely to actually lower uh, uh, the number of weapons. Uh, this has become a case, certainly since World War, since the end of World War, uh, since the end of the Cold War, uh, in which the United States and Soviet Union have substantially lowered their number of we nuclear weapons as tensions went away. Uh, some people argue, for example, arms control is a, a method of trying to uh, cure a fever by destroying the thermometer. Um, and I'm not sure that's good, valid, but the reverse is probably true, that once a fever goes away, you tend to lose sight of the thermometer, where did I put it? Um, and to a degree, there's been a negative arms race uh, that's taken place. Some of it has been by treaty and some not. Meanwhile, France has substantially reduced the number of nuclear weapons down to like a third of what they had before. China has never really built as many as they possibly could. So there may be kind of a negative arms race going on, and it may be best not to lace that down with uh, precise, um, precise treaties, though uh, maybe in some cases they will help. Um, okay, I want to deal with two other issues here. Uh, um, which is a proliferation issue, uh, that that first statement, which is from John Bolton that Jason read at the beginning, uh, Justin read at the beginning, um, was, uh, it, it was relevant to. Uh, and then, then also briefly about nuclear terrorism, atomic terrorism. Uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, it'll come as no surprise, have been far slower than predicted. And I think the reason for that has been that the weapons do not generally convey much advantage to their possessor. Um, in the 1960s, I did an article is actually came out of a seminar when I was a graduate student. Um, uh, and what I thought would be interesting, we, uh, the seminar was on proliferation, which is a big issue in the 1960s, and still is, of course. Um, and I had the idea of I would actually study Canada. Why didn't Canada have nuclear weapons by the 1960s? Canada uh, was part of the Manhattan Project, very sophisticated, very rich country, of course. And if they wanted nuclear weapons, they could have had them. They could have quite a few. They could have been the second nuclear power. In fact, probably they were the first. Uh, they were ahead in power, uh, plant, uh, nuclear gener power generation, and so forth. Um, and they never even considered it. And I thought, well, maybe Canada's like a lot of other countries. It doesn't fit their self-image. It doesn't fit their sense of uh, uh, position in the world. Uh, and it costs a whole lot of money. And they got a lot of other things they can do with their money. And, I, and so I argued basically in the article that came out in Orbis in 1967 that maybe the, what was then called the nth country problem was reaching a finite conclusion. Meanwhile, however, that was very much going against the, the, the trend. Uh, John Kennedy very famously was constantly talking about how there would be 15, 20, 25 nuclear weapons, nuclear states within a very short period of time. Um, and uh, he, he considered that a very greatest possible danger. Uh, and uh, we've had continually, like the Bolton statement, this idea about 
cascades, tipping points, avalanches, waves, chains, dominoes, epidemics, and points of no return. Uh, this has been going on now for 40 years, and we've never had any of these. If one country gets a nuclear weapon, everybody else will. If Israel gets a weapon, all of throughout the Middle East. If uh, China gets the weapon, all throughout you know, Japan, etc., will get it. Uh, and it, it simply hasn't happened. Uh, nonetheless, it continues. And uh, Mohammed el Baradei, the chief United Nations weapons inspector, says we're reaching a point today where uh, Kennedy's prediction, having been totally wrong for 40 consecutive years, uh, is very much alive. He didn't say that. I did, of course, uh, that phrase. Either we're going to have to move to nuclear armaments or we're going to have 20 or 30 countries with nuclear weapons, presumably one of them being Canada, um, if we do that. And this is the beginning of the end of our civilization. Um, and it, I think uh, a lot of uh, that's, you know, somewhat it's extravagant argument, but it's uh, that or ones like it have ma are made uh, really quite frequently. Um, one of the th problems with extension of nuclear weapons, and uh, I strongly recommend the work of Jacques Hyman's on this, is the, the economic and organizational costs, not just the economic one, but sort of getting a bureaucracy that can function of making a nuclear weapon are monumental. Uh, and uh, this has led to the assumption that any country, if it gets some fissile material, can just sort of slap it together. Uh, some people even call it child's play once you got the fissile material to make the bomb. And it, and it just uh, basically isn't true. Uh, one, a case in point, which caused a huge amount of concern uh, for a long period of time, was Libya. Libya was working on an atomic program. Um, and it uh, for, for decades uh, and spent something like $100 million on it. Um, and when Baraday, the inspector, got there, he found that most of the stuff they bought was still in its boxes. Uh, and this is Baraday. Libya was in a preparatory, preparatory stage of developing a capability that would move it to acquire a nuclear weapon. So he's got it's preparing to develop a capability to move. Uh, the question is, how is that different from being sound asleep? You know, uh, someone wakes you up in the morning and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm preparing to develop a capability to move. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it just, you know, there's about, there's all those qualifying statements in there. Um, and and, and uh, Gaddafi finally gave up partly because uh, they couldn't figure out how to do it. Uh, they had all this stuff around. People didn't know what they were doing. Uh, his bureaucracy was a mess um, and uh, didn't have, basically didn't have the skills. The point is it's just not an easy thing. So after many years, these things were still in boxes. Um, okay. Um, furthermore, related to that, that I think should be considered is that nuclear diffusion that has taken place has proved to have remarkably limited, perhaps even imperceptible consequences. The big issue, the big enchilada on this was China in 1964. Um, uh, the Chinese nuclear test, said John Kennedy at the time, is like, and it, their first test was 1964, is likely to be the historically the most significant and worst event of the 1960s. Instead, arguably, uh, the most historically the most significant and worst event of the 1960s was Kennedy's decision to escalate in Vietnam, um, which um, uh, was designed substantially to deal with the perceived Chinese threat, nuclear and otherwise. Um, and his uh, John McCone, head of, head of the CIA at the time, said, unless the Chinese threat is met by a much larger strengthened Western alliance, nuclear war is almost inevitable. Well, the, the Chinese got the bomb in 1964. Uh, there's quite a bit of discussion about that. Maybe we'll have more uh, later uh, in the session later on. Uh, but most people looked at it, including McGeorge Bundy and, and others, uh, say, well, the main reason they got it because they were constantly being threatened by the United States. 
Um, and uh, then when they did get it, they immediately said that there was a no-first-use policy, and they'd never basically used them for anything. I mean, they'd never threatened, uh, maybe a little bit here and there. Uh, they just sort of built them up, and they haven't built very many, and they're not very sophisticated. Um, and they, and, but the point is they never used it for what was the big concern at the time, nuclear blackmail, which is an issue which also ought to be, you know, what is that? How do you have nuclear blackmail? Uh, particularly if you're a relatively weak nuclear power. But anyway, the point is they haven't. If they basically, you know, most people probably, if you ask Americans, do China have nu- does China have nuclear weapons, you might find that most people don't even know. Uh, uh, what they, you know, they, they're out there somewhere, and the Chinese presumably go around keeping maintenance and you know dusting them off and so forth. Uh, but they really, from a historical standpoint, they've had zero impact. Uh, they may have been just a complete waste, uh, but for the Chinese, but they have not had these kinds of impacts. Um, so my conclusion on that, basically, is nuclear proliferation, while not necessarily desirable, is unlikely to accelerate or to prove it to be a major danger. Uh, I think the best guess on this certainly would be that if countries get them, they're going to do them like what the Chinese have done or any other country for that matter, is they sort of squirrel them away and try to figure out, you know, could they be useful in something. Uh, and they may also help to stoke their egos. That's, that's fine. Uh, but uh, basically, I don't think it's very significant uh, one way or the other. And it's not likely there's a whole bunch of countries sitting around desperately wanting to get these stupid things uh, because they've decided they are exactly that stupid, a waste of time, effort, and money. Um, and and provoke the neighbors and so forth. Um, on the other hand, there has been what I what the sort of obsession or fixation on proliferation, and I deal w- with that quite a bit in the book. But let me just quickly summarize the main uh, the main issue here. Um, that in order to keep rogue states, a new category that was also invented in the 1990s, from obtaining nuclear weapons, they've been substantially counterproductive and caused far more deaths than have been inflicted by all nuclear or weapons of mass destruction in history. Uh, there's been two efforts on that, mainly focused on, the, on Iraq, um, and the sanctions of the 1990s almost certainly uh, were a necessary cause of at least 100,000, probably quite a bit higher than that, 100,000 or more deaths uh, from, from, uh, uh, within Iraq, most of them children under the age of five. Um, and basically, uh, so in order to prevent Saddam Hussein from getting nuclear weapons or even chemical or whatever weapons, uh, th- this uh, huge regime was put together to try to keep him from doing so. And in the process, it resulted more deaths in Iraq than Saddam Hussein was ever likely to do with nuclear weapons, which he probably would never use even if he did get them, um, uh, but, and also more than were killed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. And you can throw in, if you want, the chemical deaths in World War I. It's still more. Uh, then, of course, we've had this the anti-proliferation war that started in 2003. Uh, uh, what if, what if uh, Saddam Hussein gets nuclear weapons? Uh, a lot of hysteria about that. That was the main reason for going into the war. <clears throat> and uh, the result of that war has again been at least 100,000 deaths. Uh, in other words, more than were killed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. So my argument is here, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not, nothing wrong with keeping non-proliferation a high priority. If you're able to keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons, you'd actually be doing them a favor uh, because then they wouldn't be wasting their money on, the, on, these, on these useless commodities. But it should be topped with a somewhat higher priority, avoiding policies that can lead to the deaths of tens or hundreds of thousands of people under the obsessive sway, sway of worst-case scenario fantasies. Almost nobody in 2003 was saying, so what if Saddam Hussein gets nuclear weapons? Is that the end of the world? If he really starts to, you know, play games with it, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put together a coalition that will, that will deter and contain him. 
Uh, he's already gone through two disastrous wars. His army he doesn't trust. He doesn't let the army come into Baghdad with heavy weapons. He doesn't even issue them very many bullets. This guy is going to dominate the Middle East with nuclear weapons. If he really starts to become a problem with them, or much less chemical or biological weapons, uh, he can be deterred and contained. We get Israel and the Arabs and the Americans and the Russians and so forth, uh, and he's going to be laced in if, that, if, he ever, if he ever tries to do it, if he tr is able to get them, uh, which is not at all obvious, uh, but also if he tries to actually do anything with them except deter uh, and to stoke his own ego. Uh, arguments like that, I think, can be used with respect both to North Korea and Iran currently. Um, okay, let me conclude with a brief uh, run-through of my argument with respect to uh, terrorists and the bomb. Uh, it seems to me, basically, it's extraordinarily difficult uh, to build for them to do so, um, and they're very unlikely to be able to, to do so. Um, there it goes, vanishing small right in front of your eyes. Um, now, there's several methods for getting a bomb. Uh, uh, Rolf uh, Moad Larson has an article in the current, or maybe quite not quite current, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists looking at various ways to get nuclear weapons. Uh, and interestingly, one way he thinks that they might get nuclear weapons, uh, he doesn't even discuss. So he probably thinks that's not very likely, and I agree with him on that. And one is that somebody would give a terrorist group uh, who they couldn't control a bomb to explode that eventually, either before it's exploded or after it exploded, might very well lead back to the donor. Um, and uh, even people who are very concerned about nuclear weapons, uh, uh, terrorists, atomic terrorists, uh, tend to think this is very unlikely that any state would do this, even one that's fairly flaky and, and uh, uh, um, uh, you know, very far out. An another method, uh, which he does talk about, is stealing a bomb. Uh, and that, you know, it's obviously a plausible thing. It's just that the bombs are um, you know, uh, very difficult to steal. Everybody takes security of their nuclear weapons very seriously, and if anything, that's going to increase. And I'm certainly in favor of making them ever more secure. That'd be fine. That's fine with me. Uh, stealing a bomb, however, for example, in the case of the Pakistanis, they keep their bombs in pieces. So you have to steal both pieces, know how to put them together, and they're in secure areas themselves, know how to stick them together without them having a conventional explosion which would actually destroy them, getting through all kinds of, um, of uh, safety devices, uh, then transporting it to where you want it to go and then setting it off. Uh, the designers of the bomb do not know how to make the bomb, do not know how to set the bomb off, nor do the people who maintain the bombs know how to set them off. There are people who do, of course, so you'd have to steal them somewhere, and there aren't very many of those. So the point is it gets, it gets very difficult, and, and transporting them and so forth, and uh, um, um, it, it, it just um, uh, seems to be a relatively low uh, likelihood. Uh, the th a third way is basically making a bomb with scratch, and I think almost everybody who's looked into this thinks this is so unlikely that it could be discounted. This would be actually making the fissile material and then making a bomb. And for a terrorist group, a sub-state group to do that is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, so uh, the most likely one that uh, most uh, people come up with is you should make a bomb with purloined fissile material. You steal fissile material. And then you assemble a bomb-making group of maybe, not, wouldn't, wouldn't have to necessarily be very large, maybe 8, 10, 20, 20, 30 people, uh, obviously extremely well-skilled and so forth, put them in a shop, they use the fissile material, the uh, highly enriched uranium most likely, maybe plutonium, uh, and, they, and they make a bomb, then you transport it and set it off. Um, uh, the bomb that would be set off, um, uh, I'm assuming, uh, would be large, cumbersome, unsafe, unreliable, unpredictable, and inefficient. 
all words used by Graham Allison in his book about where he's very concerned about atomic terrorism, uh, and that's the kind of bomb he's worried about. So that even if they do make it, we're assuming they do a lot of things to cut safety standards. Uh, they sort of slap things together, would not be very reliable, might very well not go off when they set it off, uh, be inefficient, unpredictable, etc. cetera. Uh, so that, but, but it would be relatively easy to make, uh, if, particularly because you don't have very high-quality standards, though whether that would be actually the case or not, I don't know. Uh, okay, well, I won't have time to go through these. They're in the book, and I'd be happy to do so later. Uh, but what I did was I worked out a narrative um, of what an atomic terrorist would have to do to carry out this task. And the, um, I, I just sort of wrote it out. We're using various sources. I started with <coughs> William Langowish's book, uh, Atomic Bazaar, and then just sort of you know, went, uh, developed it. And then later I went back and I said, okay, let's sort of bullet that. And, and come up, how many steps do you have to do to, to make the bomb? And uh, so I sort of took my argument and sort of put it, you have to do this, then you have to do this, then you have to do this, then you have to do this. And very soon, uh, without any effort, I came up with 25 steps. And I thought, no, that's too many, just aesthetically. So I bashed it down to 20, and that was a good exercise because when it, getting it down to 20 was a really painful process. I tried to keep each of these steps independent, and to, in order to do that, I sort of had to mush some uh, two or three steps sometimes together. But anyway, I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable with this 20-step scenario. And this list, the first seven, I'll show you the others in a minute. Um, but let me just discuss a couple of things, since I can't go through each step. Uh, one is the issue about corrupting insiders. The problem, the more you think about this, is you have to find somebody who knows where the fissile material is, <coughs> pay him off, in other words, you corrupt him, corrupt official or a criminal, uh, and you get the stuff out. Uh, the problem is that anybody who knows that, knows about your scheme, is also in a position to turn you in. They're also in a position to take the money and run after giving you useless material. Or they may take the money and run after giving you material that they thought was useful and turns out isn't useful. In other words, they're incompetent. Uh, so it could be either a scam um, <coughs> Or it could be a sting, which would be also very possible. And there are a lot of stings going on in this respect in th uh, throughout the world. Uh, so, and, you have to, and you have to deal with corrupt people all the way along, criminals to help you get it out, criminals to get it off a, across a former, uh, another border. Criminals, by definition, are very good at extortion. After you've basically um, um, uh, paid them off, they say, well, I know everything about it, and I'm going to go to the police unless you pay me more. So then the result is about the only way to solve that problem is to kill them. They're also going to think about that in advance, so therefore they might not cooperate. Or they might start out being a, uh, a legitimate effort, and they say, wait a minute, if I do this, they're ultimately going to kill me, so I'll go to the authorities now and say, well, I wasn't, I wasn't really part of it. Uh, let's, see, uh, let's make it into a sting, okay, and I'll be your guy uh, to do so. Um, okay, <coughs> so that's one area. The second deals with actually making the bomb, sort of... Um, um, you have to assemble a machine shop someplace, and you have to get uh, bomb-making types there. Now, you can't go down to the corner, you know, where people are looking for work and say, hey, any of you guys know how to make an atomic bomb? I got a nice job for you. Pay you really good. What you have to do is go someplace, like to Pakistan U, and, and find uh, retired or active nuclear scientists and ha ask them to go to this machine shop someplace in, you know, the outskirts of Istanbul or something and make the bomb. Um, they have to be really true believers, and they have to be basically suicidal. 
they have to assume that if they do make the bomb, the bomb does go off, and it's and uh, or or it's discovered before it goes off, uh, it'll be uh, potentially traced back to them. Every nuclear physicist from Pakistan who has gone been gone for a year and a half on vacation is going to be a little bit suspicious, uh, and they have to assume that at least their careers are over and probably their lives as well. Um, then they have to be able to work. Uh, you have to have this machine shop with people going in and out, presumably, and and the people in the area saying, "Well, we always have nuclear physicists walking in and out of you know." A, a, a windowless buildings in this area. Um, and you also have to deal with a lot of corruption um, and uh, criminal elements as well, even if you can get the really true believers to be the actual technicians. They also have to have the right kind of material. This is a statement uh, by Stephen Younger in a book called Endangered Species, came out a couple of years ago. Um, and he uh, he's the head of, used to be head of uh, Los Alamos Lab uh, weapons uh, area. Uh, and you can read through that very quickly, but the point is that it's just incredibly difficult to do, and he doesn't see how it could be done by a small group of people. You know, electricity wouldn't be reliable and so forth, and there's a huge amount of precision, even for a very simple uh, kind of bomb, uh, uh, is his argument. Okay, I'm running out of time here, uh, Justin tells me. Uh, then you have to get it to the area, and, and you have to set it off, and you have to have people who can receive it. Uh, there are no al-Qaeda supporters, uh, uh, operatives, apparently, in the United States. Uh, so you'd have to get them there to, if, if you're going to set it off in the United States to, to get it and then transport it to the target. They have to be very technically competent self, themselves to be able to know how to set it off. Uh, and there's all kinds of people running around trying to find them because the fissile material has been stolen. And there's a worldwide witch hunt. Uh, international and domestic to try to find who did it. So it's not as if you're sort of working in in in, uh, in limbo, uh, uh, completely um, um, on your own. Uh, anyway, the atomic. Uh, the the question then is: Suppose there's 20 of these barriers, and let's and everybody you know writing about it says, well, this would be difficult but not impossible. This would be difficult but not impossible. This would be difficult but not impossible. I think I have 20 difficult but not impossible steps. Uh, and I agree, they are not impossible. Uh, but the question is, uh, you have to do all of them, uh, not just one um, or two or three. And so if you assume that there's a 50-50 chance of succeeding at each of these barriers, which would, I would not call difficult, you know, 50-50 chance is pretty good. Uh, but just assuming that is 50-50 chance, the chance of, of being successful is about one in a, bil a million per try. Uh, more realistically, if you change that to one chance in uh, three, uh, at uh, each uh, barrier, your chance of being successful is about one in three and a half billion. Um, uh, so that strikes me as being not exactly a sure thing uh, by any means. Um, there's also been a, a substantial uh, 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 um, exaggeration, it seems to me, I've got a couple chapters on this, about al-Qaeda's capacity and maybe even its desire uh, to obtain nuclear weapons. Uh, they did have a weapons of mass destruction program when they were in Afghanistan. It was budgeted between two and four thousand dollars. It was mainly spent on chemical weapons. Okay, I'll skip this. There's various other uh, evidence in there, and just conclude on this: that whatever their impact on activist rhetoric, strategic pri theorizing, defense budgets, and political posturing, uh, nuclear weapons have uh, had at best a quite limited effect on history. Um, have been a substantial waste of money and effort. Uh, have not been appealing to most states that do not have them, are out of reach for terrorists, and are unlikely to shape much of our future. So sleep well. Thank you.
Thanks very much for that, John. I'll real briefly introduce our commentators now, and then uh, hopefully there's something that someone somewhere in the audience disagrees with there, and we'll throw it open to uh, questions and answers from the audience. Uh, our first commentator is Michael Crapon, who's the co-founder of the Henry L. Stimson Center here in D.C., and the author or editor of 13 books and over 350 articles. Prior to co-founding the Stimson Center, Crapon worked at uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency during the Carter administration, uh, as well as U.S. House of Representatives and assisting uh, Congressman Norm Dix. He received an M.A. from Johns Hopkins Sice and a B.A. from Franklin and Marshall, also studying Arabic at AU Cairo. Uh, at Stimson, uh, Crapon divides his time between the South Asia and the uh, space security projects. The South Asia project in particular is of interest probably concentrating on escalation control, nuclear risk reduction, confidence building, and peacemaking between India and Pakistan. He is also a teacher in the politics department at UVA and the author of the excellent recent book, also out this year, uh, I believe from Stanford University Press, Better Safe Than Sorry, The Ironies of Living with the Bomb. The second commentator is Jeffrey Lewis, who's the director of the Nuclear Strategy and Nonproliferation Initiative at New America Foundation also the proprietor of the extremely useful Arms Control Wonk blog that everyone should read. Uh, the Nuclear Strategy and Nonproliferation Initiative at New America seeks to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in international security and renew the fundamental bargain contained in the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Uh, Lewis is the author of Minimum Means of Reprisal, China's Search for Security in the Nuclear Age, which is probably also of interest in this context, uh, China's nuclear posture, that is. Uh, Dr. Lewis is also a research affiliate with the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and a member of the editorial advisory board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Uh, founded and maintains armscontrolwonk.com. Again, everyone should be reading that, obviously. Uh, before New America, uh, Dr. Lewis was the executive director of the Managing the Atom Project at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Uh, prior to that, he was the uh, executive director of the Association of Professional Schools of International Affairs, a visiting fellow at, the center, at CSIS, and in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Received his Ph.D. in Policy Studies from the University of Maryland and a B.A. in Philosophy and Political Science from Augustana College in Illinois. So that being said, the first commentator, Michael Crapon. Thank you, Justin, for bringing us together. Uh, it, it takes a fearless man to write this book. And I am... Uh, a great admirer of fearlessness. Uh, I hope that the United States government purchases this book in huge quantities and sends it free of charge to um, uh, other countries in the world. Um, I think they could benefit from reading it. Other folks can benefit from reading it. We can benefit from reading it. So I, I like this book. I disagree with a lot of it, but I like the book. Um, Professor Mueller is a very brave man. Um, uh, Ken Waltz, um, who many of you have read here, um, said that proliferation was no big deal. Professor Mueller says that proliferation, nuclear deterrence, arms control, and nuclear terrorism 
are no big deals. Um, entire library shelves. Um, books written, scholarly books, not so scholarly books written on these subjects uh, are dismissed uh, in short, succinct chapters, paragraphs, sometimes even simple declaratory sentences. Um, and that takes guts. Since Professor Mueller would ne negate my life's work, um, I must protest. <laughs> uh, but neither he nor I can prove this, can prove our differing positions. Um, causality is extremely complex on these matters, and it's a whole lot easier to explain why something has happened than why it has not happened. But so far, so far, uh, I would argue that Professor Mueller is correct. Um, and we need to dwell on that. And he forces us to dwell on that. But he's leading with his chin because he only has to be proven wrong once. Um, I agree with his analysis of threat inflation. We have all been victimized by threat inflation. It doesn't help. He's right. And it can lead to very, very costly mistakes. He's right again. During the first nuclear age, so the Cold War period, in other words, um, the costly mistakes were mostly monetary, mostly monetary. He did mention some wars that might not have been fought in the absence of threat inflation. But the primary costs during the first nuclear age were monetary. And in the United States alone, according to folks who have worked on the math, we, we spent over in excess of $5 trillion on all things nuclear. We built something like 75,000 of these weapons, a very large number, during the entirety of the Cold War. Threat inflation in the second nuclear age, the post-Cold War period, is more dangerous, in my view. And I here again I agree with Professor Mueller. Because of the U.S. military dominance in the second nuclear age, threat inflation um, has led to a preventive war with extremely high costs. And that preventive war was conducted on the basis of uh, false assumptions and extremely faulty intelligence. So we do have reason to be concerned about threat inflation. It is conducive to costly mistakes. If I would kind of take issue with um, let me put it a different way. The threat inflation that Professor Mueller dwells on in this book tends to be from the left 
from the arms control community, from the non-proliferation community, from the arms control wonks of this world. And there certainly is threat inflation from the left. But most of the threat inflation comes from the right, comes from the hardliners, comes from the hawks. Uh, where threat inflation from the left can be painful and meaningful is when there is a confluence of threat inflation from the left that joins forces with the right. And I think that's what put the, the Iraq, second Iraq war over the top. But most of the, the, the most damaging threat inflation does come from hawkish elements within the national security community. Uh, maybe because the focus of this book is so largely contemporary, we're, and I have no problem with that, but um, Professor Mueller does not dwell on NSC 68, the Gaither Committee report, Team B, and, and these earlier threat inflation episodes during the first nuclear age. There are, there's some in there, but most of this is, is contemporaneous and from the left. I, I think um, there's a lack of balance there. Um, since the demise of the Soviet Union, can you believe it, almost 20 years ago, there has still not been an act of nuclear terrorism. And there, since 1945, there has still not been uh, a third battlefield use of nuclear weapons, a mushroom cloud on a battlefield. This, to me, is rather astounding. Um, and we need to dwell on this. And I think it lends support for the arguments that Professor Mueller makes, uh, especially since the Soviet Union fell apart. There has been ample motive to carry out an act of nuclear terrorism. Um, there have been ample possibilities, actually, to create mushroom clouds because, especially after 1991, um, the safeguards on the old Soviet arsenal were, were, were not all that rigorous. But it hasn't happened yet. And I think this suggests that carrying out some of these actions uh, really is as difficult as Professor Mueller suggests. But we can't come to hard and fast conclusions to account for the absence of a mushroom cloud, I don't think or the absence of an act of terrorism. I think there are many, many contributing factors, some of which Professor 
Mueller dwells on. Others he doesn't because he's, he's, he, he is so... Um, uh, I wouldn't say dismissive, but he, he downplays the uh, value of containment, diplomatic engagement, deterrence, um, strong conventional defenses, perhaps divine intervention. Divine intervention does not come into this book. Good point. I have a problem with that. Uh, and also what used to be called arms control, and which has now morphed, in my judgment, into some, some broader enterprise of cooperative threat reduction. Uh, all of these con- factors, it seems to me, have contributed to the absence of our nuclear nightmares so far. And simple prudence suggests to me that we do not take our success so far uh, lightly or for granted. Um, We must have done some things right to prevent these nuclear nightmares. Uh, It's not simply because these weapons have so little value or the application of nuclear energy in an evil way is so purposelessness, purposeless. So we must have been doing some things right to prevent these nuclear nightmares. But we don't know and cannot know uh, in what measure each of these factors contributed to our good fortune. So it would be wise... Uh, in my judgment, not to take anything out of the toolkit that has worked so far or that may have worked so far. But we can use all of these things, deterrence, containment, strong conventional capabilities, cooperative threat reduction, diplomatic engagement. Uh, We can use all of these tools um, more effectively without threat inflation. And there, I completely agree with Professor Mueller. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much. Jeff? Great. Now, did I, did I hear that correctly? You wrote a book on dance? Yes. So, yes, so, I mean, the book I'd like you to write is the one that gets me over my fear of dancing. <laughs> I'll work on it. Uh, my my commentary uh, starts from the same place that a uh, a critique uh, of of a previous work by Professor Mueller, uh, written by Richard Betts, does, which is to say, I am not going to start by ridiculing this argument because, in general, I agree with most of it. I think the utility of nuclear weapons is exaggerated. I think the dangers of serial proliferation are exaggerated, and I think the actual uh, chances of nuclear use are very low. Uh, I think in some places uh, the book takes these arguments too far. Um, But I'm not going to dwell on those because we would spend all day arguing about assumptions. I mean, we could talk about uh, Oppenheimer's uh, calculation, but then we'd have to decide whether blow up, whether he he was just talking about blast damage. Um, We'd have to decide whether, as a native New Yorker, he thought the city ended at the uh, East River. (laughs) 
Uh, and so we can talk about China and terrorist scenarios uh, in uh, the question and answer session, but I, I'd like to make uh, a conceptual point, uh, which is uh, even if we agree that there are uh, lots of folks running around making alarmist and silly statements, where does that leave us? Uh, I mean, we do still have a public policy problem of how we deal with uh, low probability but nonetheless high-impact events. Uh, and low probability, high-impact events do happen. Uh, in uh, a, a very similar and, and I think equally good read that Professor Mueller wrote, uh, he wrote that coconuts kill far more people each year and outside of then, outside, sorry, uh, coconuts kill far more people each year than terrorism and that outside of 2001 international terrorism isn't that much out of the coconut class. The problem is, outside of 2001 is a pretty big exception. I mean, it, it, it calls to mind, other than that, how was the play Mrs. Lincoln? Uh, you know, so we do have to, I think, take seriously what happens when we're wrong and a low-probability, high-impact event happens. Uh, not simply because of the costs, although I think, as we saw in 2001, they were horrible, uh, but because also of the distorting effects on our foreign policy. And uh, we talked a little bit about Iraq, and it's very easy to say, well, we shouldn't have done that. Uh, but that calls to my mind what uh, McGeorge Bundy uh, warned John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis when they were talking about uh, uh, whether they should make the argument that the Cuban missile, uh, the uh, Russian Soviet missile deployments in Cuba didn't matter. And, and Bundy said uh, that his Republican opponents would say, you said it wouldn't happen and you were wrong. You said you would know how to stop it if it did happen and you were wrong. And now you say it doesn't matter, it does. And I, I think that this gets to a fundamental reality about the world that is a, a very serious objection to uh, the approach outlined in the book, which is the world is a very complex place. And it's not simply enough to take the risk, the probability times the impact to get a risk number. That does not capture the full, complex, distorting offense of high-magnitude uh, instances. Richard Betts, in uh, this uh, uh, critique that I mentioned, makes two points that I think get at the issue of whether uh, what I might call an actuarial approach uh, is appropriate or not. Uh, and the first is he notes this you know, time-honored thing. We all know that flying is much safer than driving, uh, yet people are much more comfortable driving than flying. But he asks, and it's a rhetorical question, you know, if you take a strictly actuarial approach, then arguably we spend too much on airline safety. Um, but does anybody really su suggest that we cut funding or, or cut investments in airline safety? N no. I mean, it, it isn't something that as a, a public policy one, one would advance, although on strictly actuarial grounds, you could certainly make the case uh, that, you know, Americans are significantly more risk tolerant given their driving habits. Uh, and so what Betts concludes from this is that perhaps instead of being more sanguine about terrorist threats, uh, maybe we should be more frightened of driving. Uh, and he, he names his article, uh, Maybe I'll Stop Driving. Uh, but of course we do still drive. Uh, Dallas Boyd rides a motorcycle, for God's sakes. Uh, and we can all sit here and come up with the reasons that we do that, even though, uh, even though those risks, when you know, multiplied over time, seem rather silly. Uh, you know, we do it because it's embedded in our way of life. We do it because we have the illusion of control. We, we do it because there are societal pressures. You know, nobody wants to be the person who says that they're afraid to drive. Uh, 
And the point is, we don't always make rational calculations. And it's not that we don't make them because we're lazy or we're stupid. It's we don't make them because the world is too complex to fully capture in individual actuarial tables. And so as a result, uh, and I think this is something that Michael's book does wonderfully, what we do instead are form conceptual notions that help guide our choices and help us deal with these risks that at the end of the day are too small, even if we could measure to really understand, and in fact are often based on counterfactuals uh, that are at base unprovable. So let me talk briefly about those two conceptions and then uh, we'll uh, happily move to questions. Uh, a lot of the debate about nuclear terrorism in particular, but, but really nuclear threats, is really a debate about what is the, the conceptual nature of the threat from nuclear weapons. There's always been a view that says uh, the problem is the bad guys with the bad weapons. Uh, and, you know, this goes all the way back to the uh, inception of the weapons up through uh, George W. Bush when he said, you know, the problem is the worst weapons in the world and the worst hands in the world. Uh, and that leads to one set of policies. But there is a different, uh, slightly more abstract and slippery conception, which is that nuclear weapons represent uh, a shared danger, that it's, it's the existence of the weapons that are dangerous. They're inherently dangerous. And as unpleasant as it is, we have to cooperate with our adversaries in order to manage that danger. It's sort of an abstract notion, uh, and it was very hard for people to make the argument directly during the Cold War. Uh, and in the Cold War, people resorted to science fiction. And perhaps you've all seen uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, not the horrible Keanu Reeves remake, but the original black and white movie. Uh, and I'll, I'll just give you a precis of the, of the plot. Essentially, an alien spaceship lands in Washington, uh, and out pops an alien named Klaatu, who has a very simple message to deliver, which is uh, the uh, quarrelsome nature of Earthlings uh, was of no concern to the peaceful people of the universe as long as we can find ourselves to killing each other on our own planet with, you know, sticks and gunpowder. Uh, but now that we had developed space flight and nuclear weapons, uh, our quarrels were everybody's problem, and unless we got our uh, quarrels under control, uh, our planet would be destroyed. Um, by the you know, generally peace-loving people of the world. This, of course, is designed to illustrate, and of all people, uh, Ronald Reagan saw this most clearly. He, in a meeting once, said, you know, I often think of how quickly our differences would vanish if we were confronted with an alien threat, uh, which is so Hollywood. But, and Colin Powell thinks he was thinking of the day the Earth stood still, but it's so exactly right in the sense that it is this way of understanding that you might have common interests with people you don't like very much. Uh, and aliens were a useful way of illustrating that. Well, I would submit to you that in today's debate, uh, the, the debate about nuclear terrorism, in as many ways, the terrorists are the aliens. Right? It's, it was a weird moment in 2004 when John Kerry and George Bush agreed that nuclear terrorism was the greatest threat uh, to the United States, but they completely disagreed about why. For George Bush, it was the worst, hand, the worst hands on the worst weapons, and it was that classic conception. But for John Kerry, the terrorists were the aliens. They were that other that motivated the need to cooperate with the Russians and the Chinese and, and other people who speak in funny languages and eat foods that scare us. It helps, I think, make real uh, this abstract notion. And I think that almost... Uh, I think the vast majority of alarmism that one sees is really a desire to advance one's particular conception uh, against the other. Now, I, I fully recognize that, that people take this to an extreme uh, with uh, a disturbing regularity. 
uh, and, and the rhetoric itself can have a distorting effect. But I, I don't buy the argument that the solution to that is to become actuaries, to become life insurance executives and then leave it to somebody else to clean up the mess when we're wrong. Uh, and so I will just close uh, with a short quote from Michael Howard in the early 1980s when he was discussing uh, precisely this same problem of how one builds a shared conception in order to deal accurately uh, with a threat. And, and this is what he said, and I, I think it ends with almost exactly the same recommendation that Michael ended with in his book, which is, above all, we must, be, we must stop being frightened and trying to frighten each other with specters either of Soviet windows of opportunity or of the prospect of inevitable self-generating nuclear war. Defense will continue to be a necessity in a world of, all, of sovereign states. Nuclear war is a terrible possibility that nothing can now eradicate, but whose horrors we must never lose sight. To deal with the dilemma arising from these twin evils, we need clear heads, moral courage, human compassion, and above all, a sense of proportion. The main condition for consensus in the 1980s is, in fact, that we should all grow up. This, unfortunately, may be the most difficult requirement of all. Okay, okay, great. Thanks very much to the commentators. Uh, we'll probably stretch it out to about 20 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, and so I hate doing this, but I think I'll take uh, questions in sort of twos or threes uh, so that we can hopefully move quickly. Uh, so we'll start, I guess, down here in the front. Uh, please just briefly identify yourself. Uh, the shorter the question, the better. And please wait for the uh, person with the microphone. Thanks very much, Chris Nelson, Nelson Report. Uh, Professor Miller, uh, Jennifer Lind was telling me this morning I had to read your book, uh, so I will. Um, I had two questions. Uh, you have to indulge me. Um, maybe it's in the book, but I did not hear in your talk any discussion of how or why the U.S. nuclear umbrella would give Canada, for example, or Japan, perhaps more pertinently, the luxury uh, of deciding to not have nuclear weapons. Uh, now, the argument with Japan is it would make them an automatic first strike target, but you know, that's another part of it. Second question. Um, I didn't hear any discussion of deterrence uh, as a reality, a lot of sarcasms about it. And God knows uh, we all agree sarcasm is the last stop before despair. But, but uh, 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 why, why, for example, uh, does Kim Jong-il's more or less bomb not prevent us from using uh, uh, any weapons against him? Because if we do, the risk to Seoul is obviously there. How do we have the presumption to risk the lives of the only real city in South Korea? And I would argue that argument extends to any small nation state, Japan, Israel. You know, we could absorb multiple nuclear hits, presumably, uh, so could the Sovs, but uh, Japan, the small countries, they're, they're gone. Um, I think that that's it. Anyway, thank you. Let's take one more right here on the aisle, please. My name's Alan Kress. I'm retired from the State Department and the Nonproliferation Bureau. Um, I, I think uh, all of this is terrific, and I've been an admirer of, of Dr. Miller for a long time. Um, but I wanted to get to something Michael Crapon said, and he said both sides in this debate tend to exaggerate, both sides. The left exaggerates the threat when it suits their purposes, apparently, and the right exaggerates the threat when it suits theirs. I wonder if any of you have explored... I mean, beyond the simple statement that all these people are saying these things because they really believe them, because they are really afraid, and because they want to save the world from disaster, certainly that must be part of it. 
but there must be another part of it that somehow this all this threat inflation feeds into political agendas. Now there are certain obvious answers to that, but I, I would like to know how each of each of you, all three of you, feel about that, or how much you've thought about that. John, do you want first, Yeah, let me uh, go right to the question. In the case of the nuclear umbrella, uh, Canada was not was under was not particularly under nuclear umbrella uh, in the 40s and early 50s. But uh, actually, better point is that the British were were, were equally not under a nuclear umbrella. Uh, and they developed them anyway. Same with the French. Uh, later on, NATO and other things got uh, clicked. So uh, uh, Canada couldn't uh, was in no more of a nuclear umbrella than was Britain or France, who actually developed the bomb. Uh, I don't. I don't think deterrence never works. It, uh, my my issue basically with deterrence um, is that it's sometimes applied where it's not necessary. Um, and and in, in basically, as far as I can see, all those efforts to try to deter the Soviet Union from doing something it had no intention whatever of doing anyway um, are, uh, uh, were, were wasted. And what should, what should be considered is what Michael Krepin pointed out, uh, is that over that period of time, in order to deter the Soviet Union from doing something it would never have done anyway and had no plans of doing, and documents at the end of the Cold War reinforce this over and over again, uh, we spent uh, uh, 50, uh, a half a trillion dollars on that. Uh, um, the, another calculation is that of, um, of uh, Carl Sagan, who suggested that the amount of money spent on nuclear weapons during the Cold War was enough to buy everything in the country except for the land. Uh, that's a lot of money, and there's a lot of other things you could have done with that money, so it has to be uh, kept in mind. In the, case of, in, the, in the case of deterrence with North Korea and so forth, one of my main uh, issues on this is that if you don't want nuclear weapons to proliferate, stop threatening countries. Uh, North Korea obviously feels threatened. Iran surely has been threatened religiously for 20 years, ever since the fall of the Shah, in various ways. Um, and it doesn't take much imagination for them to be concerned about it. And the best evidence on China was that they felt threatened for a very good reason, that they were constantly being threatened by the United States. So they... they, they, they pardon? And, and Well, in Russia, too, yeah. Uh, and there was a, there's this basic uh, you know security dilemma sort of thing, but particularly in those in those those uh, smaller cases and so forth. And the question about exaggerating, um, I agree that uh, basically hardly anybody says what I'm saying, uh, and that strikes me as being somewhat strange. Uh, I keep going into these projects saying, well, I'll just quote all the people who've already said this, and I can't. It's hard to find them. Um, you can't get. I mean, you can't get books published, right? <laughs> uh, it's hard to get books published uh, saying the world is not coming to an end. Uh, op-ed pieces. How many op-ed pieces are there that have said, you know, more or less what I've said? Uh, very few. Um, I've been saying terrorism isn't that big a deal since, since two, you know, forever, actually, but certainly since 9-11. I have been consistently right, uh, and the people who get the publicity are the legions, left, right, center, and wherever, who are saying, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're reconstituted, uh, the, uh, and, and they're coming after us. And it's only a matter of time, and they're very patient. Uh, and so forth, and they've been wrong continually. Maybe eventually they'll, something will happen, uh, but um, uh, basically you don't get very many uh, arg arguments about that. How many, how many op-eds have you read saying that a radiological attack would increase the uh, area of, uh, would increase radiation in a very small area, such that if you stayed there for 40 years nonstop, you would, your chance of getting cancer would go up by one-tenth of one percent. It already is, by the way, 20 percent, so that's not a very big change. Uh, why don't people say that? When the, when the press talks about a dirty bomb going off in an NFL stadium, why don't they say that? By the way, if it does go off, don't, you know, don't sit there eating hot dogs for 40 years because you might get cancer. Leave. Walk. And, and that's important because it means basically don't panic. You've got 40 years to get out of the bloody stadium. You know, work on it. 
Um, so the, so the, you know, why isn't that there? Uh, going back to something that Michael Crepon said a little bit and also um, uh, Jeff Lewis, uh, the question is, what are your chances of being killed by a terrorist at present rates? Uh, the answer is actually the coconut thing. I was wrong about the coconut thing. I was getting that from an urban legend, it turned out. But I'll switch deftly to lightning. The number of people who have been killed over the last 30, 40 years by lightning, the number of Americans killed by international terrorists over the last 30 or 40 years by international terrorism, including 9-11, uh, is, about one, uh, is about the same as the number of been killed by lightning. Um, or another way of putting it, what are your chances of being killed by a terrorist over 80-year period, assuming there's another 9-11 every few years, if you live outside a war zone? And the answer is about 1 in 80,000. If there aren't other 9-11s, then your chance of being killed is about 1 in 130,000. Now, why doesn't the Department of Homeland Security say that? They have this little thing on the front page that says, uh, terrorists could strike at any time, anywhere, and with virtually any weapon. Well, maybe sort of true. Why doesn't the next sentence say, however, uh, your chance of being killed by an international terrorist at present rates over an 80-year period is 1 in 80,000? It's never there. The first thing is there, which also goes to the question about threat inflation. Uh, Paul, I, did, I did this book called Overblown, which I also had problems getting uh, uh, published, uh, because the, uh, a lot of publishers thought that, well, we agree with the point that uh, terrorism is overblown, but we'll publish the books, so there'll be a terrorist act someplace, and no one will buy the book. Uh, the book never, and my answer was that, yeah, but then it'll become a collector's item. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but the, um, uh, but, but, and of course the book never says there'll never be another terrorist attack, but simply that the, it should be kept in context. Um, so that um, uh, what happens, there's a long debate, a discussion in there about the terrorism industry. Politicians, the press, uh, the um, uh, bureaucracy, uh, and the general CYA mentality of people in office and so forth, uh, and plus terrorism experts, uh, basically keeps, keeps hyping it. And uh, something about that, uh, that uh, Jeff Lewis mentioned, about are, are we, are, uh, no one goes around saying we're too safe, even though we are. I think, you know, uh, that, uh, that uh, you could make a good case that airplanes are too safe. We're spending too much money to add a little tiny bit of increment, and that same amount of money could be used, for example, on smoke detectors, or on uh, seatbelts enforcement, which would kill, save far more people than this minor improvement of safety uh, includes, and it's not being discussed overall. Uh, so, uh, so what happens is you get this sort of ongoing um, uh, uh, sense of uh, false sense of insecurity, which is being exacerbated mostly because of pressures from the bottom, I have to admit, uh, by politicians and uh, by the press and everybody else. Um, and it, it's, uh, it seems to be very questionable. Can I add one thing about, by the way, uh, Lewis, um, uh, Jeff Lewis said something about um, low probability, high impact events, and he's ab totally, absolutely right about that. Uh, obviously, even if probability is extremely low, uh, the consequences are horrific, then you have to you know, worry about that. Um, however, they, you know, there's a lot of things much worse than nuclear terrorism. How about, the, how about Britain deciding, waking up one morning and deciding to kill 30 or 40 million Americans with nuclear weapons? They have the capacity. Uh, we don't worry about it. Why? Because they don't have the capacity? No, they do have the capacity, uh, because the probability is very low. Or if you think they're too warm and cuddly over there in London, how about Russia, with whom we have you know, not exactly the world's best relations? They could kill 50, 60 million Americans probably any time. I call that high consequence. Uh, but we don't worry about it. And so the question is, it must be that the probability is so low that we don't worry, worry about it very much. And maybe it's about one in three and a half billion which is the probability, in my opinion, that a terrorist could get a bomb, uh, even under fairly cer uh, favorable circumstances. At any rate, at some point, 
and I, it's, uh, it's an extremely good point to try to work on, uh, terror, uh, the probability of even catastrophic events becomes so low uh, that you don't worry about them. Uh, and maybe one in 30 million, or one in 30 billion, one in three, three and a half billion uh, would be somewhere where it's at. At any rate, that's a kind of discussion I think it should be uh, held, and it so very rarely is. Yeah, I, I think that actually really illustrates very neatly the difference. I mean, the, the reason I think we don't worry about a British nuclear attack is I don't think anyone does the calculation, right? because I don't think we do calculations to deal with problems like these because we can't calculate them. I mean, I, I forget how many people die from auto accidents, but, you know, a one in five chance of killing a million people is not the same thing as 200,000 people dying of routine causes over the same period of time. And mathematically it is, but in real life it isn't. You know, it, it, it just, it isn't how public policy, policymakers just don't, most people don't do that and policymakers don't do that. And, and I think I would argue that they're right not to do that um, because at the end of the day, there are, uh, there are aspects of those risks that are not measurable, that, that get at much deeper and more profound ways about how we think about our security and our place in the world. That's it. I, you know, I, I spent part of this month in, in Pakistan, and where the threat of terrorism and the consequences of terrorism are pretty grotesque at, at present. And so I, I'd be careful about generalizing from the U.S. experience. We have been fortunate, uh, and the odds are quite low for us. But th that's not always the case elsewhere. Th threat inflation, uh, the, the dice are loaded for the threat inflators. That's part of the problem politically. Uh, threat inflation is generally risk-free because if you say you must do X, Y, and Z or else the probability of something awful happening um, will grow and something awful will happen by such and such a date, usually it's five years off into the future. Um, that's from the Cold War because you have to have enough time in order for your proposals to be implemented, and to the extent that your proposals are implemented and something awful doesn't happen, you can take credit. And to, if something awful does happen and not all of your proposals have been acted upon, then that's the reason. So the dice are loaded in favor of the threat inflators. That was obviously the case in the first nuclear age. In the second nuclear age, there was a, an important twist because uh, when the result of threat inflation uh, turns out to be a war based on faulty uh, intelligence and false assumptions, then it's on you. And politically, you lose at least for a time. So the threat inflators are still a little bit on their heels, after the second Iraq war, uh, but they're trying to make a comeback. Great. 
Let's take another tranche of questions, and while we're – let's go all the way in the back onto the aisle of the gentleman in the white shirt. While we're doing that, let me see if I can sort of bring together uh, Jeff and John Mueller. I think, without putting words in your mouth, John, your view is that sort of the role of scholars is to deload the dice for threat inflators, and those are the functions of your actuarial approach, so-called, to these sorts of issues. And I wonder if that's – if. The, if there's disagreement on that view, if, 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 if you think that, the, no, that's not the role of scholars. The role of scholars is to operate within political reality, you know, if, if that's really the conceptual uh, difference between the two. So w with that on the table, let's go on the aisle there. Uh, this question or comment is addressed to uh, Mr. Mueller, uh, especially uh, as well as to others. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way you address the question. But I'm disappointed that nobody mentions that the only threat, uh, only so far nuclear terrorism has been done by the United States government in Japan at the end of the Second World War, dropping two nuclear bombs right smack in the middle center of the two cities. And that was not really needed because Japan was almost defeated and surrounded by the United States. Uh, it was just a matter of time when they would surrender, but they were forcing them to surrender and therefore committing a genocide. Now, why is that country and the right wing of that country so much hyper about these nuclear threat when they were the ones who first did it? And I'm sure somebody might do it. I mean... Uh, nobody can guarantee that nobody would ever do that. That's impossible. So I'm just wondering why that is the case. Is, is there a psychology in it? Thank you for the question. Uh, let's take two more if we can. Uh, the gentleman right here and then the gentleman on the back of the uh, first section, please. If you can just wait just real quickly for the microphone. Hi, my name is David Palkey from the Institute for Defense Analyses in UCLA. Uh, my question is for Professor Mueller. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the evidence behind your, your claim that nuclear weapons aren't militarily useful. I know you mentioned Colin Powell's comment that uh, the study indicated that tactical nuclear weapons wouldn't be, it would take a number of them, several of them, to be useful against dispersed Iraqi forces. To me, that almost indicates the utility of the nuclear weapons because uh, Iraq dispersed its forces uh, in fear of uh, U.S. nuclear weapon strikes, um, which has come out in some of the uh, captured Iraqi documents. Um, so, so I guess that, 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 that's my question, is what evidence that's based on. I can, I can think of a, of a number of hypothetical ways that nuclear weapons would be very useful, I think. Thanks. And then there was, it was right back on the, yes, the gentleman, right back there, yeah, on the, yes, that's you. Hello, I'm Craig Moran, Independent. Um, Mr. Mueller, you were talking about how wasteful um, this, the uh, spending for nuclear weapons is. And I was, I've heard that the, um, the arms race, specifically the nuclear arms race, hurt the Soviet Union a lot more than it hurt us and maybe hasten the downfall of the Soviet Union. Um, could that, if that's true, could that also happen to North Korea? All right, and let's take one more. Greg Thielman, right there on the aisle, please. Greg Thielman, Arms Control Association. I certainly applaud uh, efforts to uh, um, fight against threat inflation. Uh, I'm quite interested in doing that myself. Uh, I was wondering, though, about your use of the Libyan uh, case. Uh, that that seems like too easy. Uh, 
uh, Libya at least had money, but I mean, any, any Libyan expert uh, over the last few years knew that, that, that there was great rhetorical excess in describing uh, Libyan, Libyan WMD potential. Let's go to the harder cases of Pakistan and North Korea. I mean, these are two desperately poor countries. Uh, Pakistan uh, is a, a fractious uh, society, uh, uh, disorganized. North Korea might be organized, but uh, even even more uh, desperate in terms of its economic and, and societal resources. And yet, Pakistan has quite a number of nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea may or may not, but at least is very close to a nuclear weapons potential. So uh, it, it does seem to me that you can't quite dismiss uh, the proliferation problem by looking at Libya when there are the Pakistans and the North Koreas. Thanks very much. So we have on the table Hiroshima Nagasaki, military utility in the context of the first Gulf War, costliness in the context of the Soviet Union and North Korea, and the differences in proliferation between Libya versus Pakistan and North Korea. So that's okay, what Let I'm me doing. try to get those in. In the case of Japan, there is a discussion of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it probably is the case uh, that it was not necessary to, bu- to drop those bombs to cause the war to end there because of the Soviet intervention and so forth. I don't think the Americans knew by any means that uh, the war was nearly over and that they didn't need them. They mainly needed to kill more Japanese, they thought. And so I don't think they were, uh, uh, you know, uh, clouding, uh, clouding anything. It was a tragedy, probably. Uh, but by the way, your use of the word genocide is just is typical. I mean, it, it killed 110,000 people in a war in which uh, maybe 2 million Japanese were killed. And so to call that genocide strikes me as being um, uh, being, 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 being extreme. Uh, but again, the key thing, it seems to me, the Americans didn't know that the bombs were uh, uh, potentially not necessary uh, uh, beforehand. Um, and, and maybe they were, in which case it's a tragic mistake. Um, on the uh, Soviet Union thing, I, I do think, yes, the arms race did help to contribute to the downfall of uh, the Soviet Union as they tried to keep up though, both in conventional and, and, and in nuclear arms. On the other hand, there are a whole bunch of the bad things going on, like an inability to run an economy, uh, extreme secretiveness, which caused them not to develop computers and a whole lot of other technology, and including video recorders, for that matter, um, and just an inability to uh, generate uh, consumer goods overall. Uh, it seems to me that ultimately Khrushchev was right when he said in the kitchen debate with Nixon, uh, who can produce more consumer goods for its, its people, they'll, they'll win. And that's more or less what happened. Um, I think uh, it was not, uh, you know, the, the arms race contributed to that, and their overspending on that uh, contributed to it. Uh, but that, and plus, plus additional expansion, such as taking on Vietnam and Angola and, uh, and uh, Mozambique and uh, Ethiopia and Cambodia and so forth under their wing. And then finally, of course, the disaster for them when they took over uh, or tried to take over or keep control over uh, Afghanistan. So there are a whole bunch of things going on, though I certainly think the uh, arms race contributed. Um, I think I skipped one question. Military uh, utility in the first place. Yeah, the military utility is a good point. There, 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 were, there were real considerations of using it in Korea in particular, um, and they generally come down to the f- fact that um, they, it doesn't seem to be very useful. Again, you need concentrated targets. They definitely can be military useful if there's a really concentrated target. I'm not saying uh, that it's impossible. Um, and the possibility of dropping them on China 
uh, was also discussed. MacArthur sort of liked that idea at various times. So there may have been a military utility. These are overwhelmed by other things, such as you could do it as well or almost as well with conventional weapons, particularly since the United States controlled the, the air so uh, so much, um, and that um, they were they also weren't very many atomic bombs at the time. And the Joint Chiefs was particularly interested in saving the bombs uh, because they wanted to use them in the war that they thought was going to happen next, which was a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, thinking that, that uh, Korea was just sort of a faint. So there are other reasons for, for doing it. The battlefield messiness, however, is, it certainly remains there. Um, and, you can, and you can also decrease the usefulness, as you point out, of nuclear weapons by simply dispersing targets. Uh, they, they, as I said, they had very difficult, a lot of difficulty finding decent targets, uh, but even assuming you'd want to use nuclear weapons uh, in, in Korea. Um, and also in Vietnam, or uh, uh, ones that wouldn't be better than others. In the, in the case of Libya, um, I, I hope, I, I, again, I'd like to point to the work of Jacques Hyman's on this. He's been looking at these bureaucratic problems, including countries that sort of move toward nuclear weapons like uh, Romania, you know, and Ceausescu put his wife in charge of the uh, nuclear weapons program and so forth. You get these various dysfunctional regimes. Uh, North Korea has been trying to get nuclear weapons for, I don't know, 40 years or something like that. So far, as Hyman's points out, they have now won the gold and the silver medal for the least impressive first tests of nuclear weapons. Um, so they have gotten something together, and it does demonstrate, and your point is absolutely right, that an extremely poor, uh, messed up uh, country can get nuclear weapons if they really want to pay the cost. The North Koreans have obviously been able to do that uh, at a very big cost, obviously, to the North Korean people overall. In the case of Pakistan, it's quite a bit more sophisticated, certainly, than Libya um, uh, or many other uh, countries, but it still took Pakistan 28 years to do so. Uh, and their first tests were not all that impressive as well. So, so it, it is the case that poor countries can do it if they're willing to make the sacrifices. It's just that when they, like Libya, they get into it and say, it isn't worth it. Even Libya, which is sort of a nutty country, uh, we don't want to keep plowing money into this. Um, and uh, then, uh, uh, you know, Gaddafi starts storming around saying, well, what we really want to do is have international connections and so forth, and I give up on terrorism, and I, it's a new world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, uh, and so Libya probably could eventually have gotten nuclear weapons. They really wanted to pay the cost. The, the issue basically is the cost, and the main thing I want to illustrate with that, the cost is not trivial. It's very high, uh, even for relatively sophisticated countries like Pakistan. Any of those points in particular or more general? Concluding remarks for Jeff or Michael. Yeah, one of the reasons why I want the U.S. government to, to purchase large quantities of this book and distribute, the, distribute them freely in Pakistan is because I, I think the Pakistani military um, are looking at the same application of nuclear weapons that uh, Colin Powell asked his uh, Pentagon analysts to look at for the Gulf War. And, the, the, you know, using nuclear weapons to deal with conventional forces that are attacking you. Um, and, unfortunately, Pakistan, unlike the United States, is militarily uh, disadvantaged compared to its potential adversary. And... Um, is looking at nuclear weapons to solve problems that I don't believe they can solve. Well, on that note, let me thank our commentators and John Mueller for presenting today, and please join us upstairs for a Diet Coke and a sandwich. Thank you. Thank you.